0: Good morning, and welcome. Boy, is it nice to see sunshine and, and temperatures up into the 50s? Wow, is that great. All right, let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful sunny day, this beautiful Sabbath day. We pray that you will join us today with the sunshine of your love and truth, that our minds will be enlightened and warmed by your presence today. We pray in your holy name, amen. amen. We are doing lesson number 10 in our uh, quarterly, the Fruit of the spirit and the title this week is the fruit of the spirit is self control. And the question, what is the difference between self control and god control? Have you ever heard people make that prayer? Lord, I've messed up so many times. I don't want to mess up anymore. I surrender my will to you. You take control. Anybody we don't raise your hand, but do you ever ever maybe even felt like praying that prayer yourself? What is the difference between... Is there a difference between self-control and God-control? Yes.
1: There's something you do maybe with uh, self-esteem and
0: God-esteem? Self-esteem and God-esteem. How we, maybe we esteem God. Hmm.
1: If God controls us, then we're like
0: automatons. She says if God controls us, then we're like automatons, like machines. Are we called to surrender our wills to God? Yes, there's no question about it. We are. When we surrender our wills to God, what happens? What transpires? She says, we change. We change, yeah. Do we become puppets? No. Do we have our freedom and our autonomy removed when we surrender our wills to God? Oh, did you hear that? Well, isn't this interesting? How is it that surrendering our will to God actually results in greater freedom? How does that work?
1: She know the truth and the truth
0: shall set you free. She, she says you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free way in the back.
1: Uh well we either serve
0: God or you serve your desires. Desires tend to be slave masters. Oh, I like it. Did you hear what he's saying back there? And I think we we're going to explore that as we go through. There's some there's some tension here between surrendering to God and serving Him. And if we don't surrender to God, then what's the consequence? What's naturally occurring in our hearts and minds if we're not surrendering to God? And he's suggesting we have desires that are tend to be slave masters of us. Let's, let's, I think we should explore that. Somebody read the last paragraph uh, entitled, uh, or beginning, Self-Control May Sound. Last paragraph, Sabbath lesson.
1: Self-control may sound negative, but it's an integral part of grace itself. We don't control ourselves, our feelings, our appetites, our drives, and they control us. Thus it's either self-control under the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, or it's being controlled by someone or something else. We ultimately
0: decide. So there's the affirmation of what was said in the back. If we're not surrendering to God, then, then we have this, this uh, the, the quarterly is suggesting that our feelings or appetites drives will control us. Let's see if we can't flush this out in real life. About freedom. About how surrendering ourselves to God results in more freedom. Mm-hmm. Is a person who's addicted to alcohol or drugs free? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anybody know what the, the first and second step of the 12 steps are? Step one? We're powerless. Step two. We turn our lives over to a higher power who can restore us to sanity. You see? Step one, step two, we can't be free without a higher power. We're slaves. We're slaves to our addiction. We can't have freedom. Turning our lives over to a higher power frees us. So there's that little insight into how surrendering to God Results in freedom. How about a person who's addicted to porn? Are they free? A person who's addicted to binging on food? Or how about somebody, maybe you don't like this word addiction, maybe it's too strong, but somebody who is bent on getting adoration or praise or attention of others. Do you know people like this? That they live off of the adoration and praise of others. Are those people free? No. No. They're in the worst kind of slavery. They go in, I, I got patients like this all the time. They, they're stressed out. They go into a room, and as soon as they go in the room, the radar goes up, and they start scanning the room to see if they can pick up on the opinions of the people in the room and what the people in the room may like or dislike. And then they begin trying to act in ways to get those people to like them and affirm them and think positive of them. And they fear rejection. They fear criticism. They fear being laughed at. And they live in this constant state of anxiety and apprehension and fear. Know anybody like this?
1: Perfect.
0: Yeah, are those people free? They're not free. They're not free. If we indulge in appetite and violate the laws of health, what happens to us? If we eat Big Macs and fries five days a week, what happens to us? Do we get obese? We get obese, yes. Do we get heart disease? Do we get um, uh, diabetes? Metabolic syndrome? And is, the more physical illness do we have, are we getting more freedom or losing freedom? <laughs> losing freedom. When we surrender, surrender, surrender our lives to Christ and follow His guidance for us and live a healthy lifestyle, do we get more freedom from these things? So we've been enslaved with this unhealthy appetite and health problems. We're overweight. We've got diabetes and all these things going on. And we come to say, you know what? I'm going to give my life to Christ. I'm going to start living by His principles. I'm going to change my diet, my habits. I'm going to start exercising. Now, over the course of time, what's going to happen? We're going to lose weight. We're going to have our blood pressure come under control. Our diabetes is going to improve. Do we get more freedom as that happens?
1: you go too far, you can get addicted the other way.
0: Yes, she says you go too far, you can get addicted the other way. That's some of those people who, who are into the health message. You've heard them say it. I'm going to keep this health message even if it kills me.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah too far the other way, right? Okay. If a person is consumed with fear and insecurity, are they free? And perfect love casts out fear. When we surrender our lives to Christ, do we experience the infusion of love? And that frees us from fear. So, surrendering to Christ is part of the process of regaining our freedom and our autonomy. And it almost sounds counterintuitive, except that you know the character of the one you're surrendering to. Yes?
1: I don't know if I can convey this adequately or not. Uh, What you said is that if we go too far the other way, then, you know, you're you're off the fence on either side. So it would be a matter of fine-tuning us that's what God is in the process of doing. I'm a piano tuner, and I know that when I tune a piano, sometimes the piano is so far gone, I can't tune it to the tuning fork. But if Christ is the tuning fork, and they built pianos to go to A440, he's in the process of tuning us to him, and that's when it's most
0: I like that metaphor. Christ would be the standard and he's trying and he's trying to bring us all back into harmony harmony tuning yeah I like it it's nice sunday 's lesson paradox of self-control um, the question of self-control what impairs what gets in the way what obstructs what 's the obstacle what undermines our ability to actually experience self-control she, he said sinful nature. You said? Our desires, our desires which was said back in, in the back, our desires. This is what it says in uh, James one thirteen through 15. It says, no one should say God tempts because God is, uh, does not tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. So yes, our own desires are what pull us away and, and tempt us. The Bible is describing this greatest source of our temptation. It's not primarily, as the old television program used to say, the devil made me do it. It's not the external temptation, which is the primary source of what troubles us. It's the internal pull of fear and insecurity and and various desires. And the Bible tells us in our lesson, asks us to look uh, in... 1 John 2:15 and 16 because it asks us to look at three variables in which this internal desire is manifested. And in the Old King James English it tells us that this internal desire, this temptation is manifested in three primary ways, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. How would you how would you call that today? What's the lust of the flesh? You can give examples, or you can just give a general modern name. What? Sensualism. sensualism. Sensualism is lust of the flesh, which means any of the of the lusts that give physical pleasure. It could be drugs. It could be alcohol. It could be gluttony. It could be sex. It could be anything that brings physical pleasure is, is sensualism. What is lust of the eyes? Material. Materialism. Greed. Wanting to get more and more and more and more, and... Pride of life? What's well, pride? Ego. Egotism, pride, arrogance, self centeredness. And it says that, that each of us, being born in sin and conceived in iniquity, have predispositions in our hearts that pull us in one of these three veins.
1: Might that be another one?
0: Which one? Spiritualism. Spiritualism. I'm thinking how that would be different than one of these three.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't know if it fell under that big umbrella or not.
0: Well, spiritualism is still, when the people go through spiritualistic pursuits, it's almost always to gratify one of these three. Mm-hmm. They want to get more power. They want to get more possessions. They want to get more advancements. They want to get some fertility right in their spiritualistic endeavor.
1: Would that be the craving of simple man?
0: Yeah, this is it. The craving of simple man. Lust of the eyes, lust, uh, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. And so spiritualism gratifies these three. It always works through one of these three. When, when you go through the various um, spiritualistic things, palm reading, voodoo, witchcraft, all those things, they're all promising to gratify one of these things. It's going to give you knowledge. Knowledge is power. It's about advancing self, self, self self-promotion. So it's still, it's still working through these avenues, promising to gratify one of these things. How many have you have heard about people who have supposedly made these pacts with the devil for fortune and fame, right? What are they wanting? One of these three. They're wanting fortune, they're wanting fame. Self, uh, promotion, the pride of, uh, the pride of life, and the, and the lust of the eyes. So, essentialism we've already talked about. What would materialism look like in the world today? Somebody who has is, who is got problems with materialistic temptation, desires. What does it look like? Credit card debt debt. Sure Overexpending Trying to keep up with the the neighbors Uh, You know, we've got to do more because the neighbors do more That competition to to make yourself look good in some materialistic way How else?
1: Obsession
0: with image Obsession with image Obsession with image, yeah Yeah American Idol Yeah or maybe that's egotism. Maybe that's part of the pride. Maybe it's both. Both mixed together. How about gambling? Lottery playing? Would these be part of materialism? Pursuing that that, that ever, ever pushing for more. It's never greed? The pursuit of wealth? How about cheating? Cheating on your taxes? Materialism? How about Ponzi schemes? You know what Ponzi schemes are, right? Yeah.
1: Cheating on your tithe.
0: Cheating on your tithe. offerings, yeah, always needing more egotism, need to be first needing to be acknowledged, power over people, this authoritarian attitude where you believe you have the right to command other people's behavior that you are somehow above them and you know and you can dictate to other people how their life should be, despotism dictatorship how about unwillingness to repent what was it that forbade Lucifer in heaven from repenting Pride. 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 Egotism. Pride. Exactly. Unwillingness to admit when one is wrong. Unwillingness to change an opinion or respond to evidence. That I see a lot. Presenting evidence to people and they won't respond. How about, Margaret mentioned potentially earlier, the need to stand out in the crowd by dressing so overly humble and plain that you demonstrate your extreme chastity and virtue. (laughs) Ever seen that? I've seen it on campus here. Yeah, egotism, pride. What happens in the mind when we allow our feelings, our feelings, these desires we read about, so we have these desires, talked about in James, uh, explored or or expanded further in John. What happens if we allow these desires to overrule our judgment and we choose to do what the desire says, even though our judgment says, not so good idea? What happens to us? Internal, not external, not the financial debt, but internal to us what happens. Well, Jeremiah 17, the human mind is deceitful above all things, utterly wicked, who can know it? Sure, so we become self-deceived. What else happens? And what's the consequence of becoming self-deceived? It hurts us. Hurts us. How does it hurt us? Does it hurt us just psychologically or does it hurt us more than that? Think, think, think through life experience. don't have to tell a life experience, but in your mind as you're processing this, pull up some memories of your own and think about times in your life, and, and I'll just to help you focus. Think of the, the three decisions that you regret the most in your life. The three that God gave you a redo, you would take it. Redo those. Okay? And those three decisions, how many of those came because your good judgment uh, explored the evidence and truths and made a decision to follow what your clear conscience and good judgment knew was best? How many of those three regrets came because powerful emotions or feelings were in charge? What happened then after you made those three decisions? What happened to you? Greater peace, less peace? Greater sense of well-being? Self-esteem up or self-esteem down? Yeah. Self confidence, self worth, yeah. integrity. What about guilt? What happened to guilt? Up or down? Yeah. Guilt went up. Yes.
1: It, so it could be very tricky if you're you know, evaluating those those things in your life. I, I just went to the seminar. What Would Jesus have wanted to do over what he was doing? I'm saying the outcome of whatever bad decisions we made. What if what if
0: they turned out good and we just haven't seen it? Um Yeah, I, I would suggest that that the Lord can bring good out of evil, and just because the Lord can bring good out of evil doesn't mean that the decision was a good decision. And so in Gethsemane, you brought up Christ. This is a great example because Christ shows us that He struggled with powerful human emotion. Intense, More intense than any of us will ever experience in our life. Did he make his choice based on the emotion? No. 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 Notice the difference. He did not choose based on emotion. And I'm suggesting that the regrets that most of us experience, and would you all agree with me that your greatest regrets were based when your emotions overruled what you knew was right? I know in my life that's true. It's clearly true. So if we look at our mind, we have our judgment up here. Judgment. My handwriting is bad. I'm a doctor. Give me a break. Okay? <laughs> but we have our, our will, which is our power of choice. And then we have feelings down here, or desires, or emotions. Feelings, desires, or emotions. And notice, if you maybe read something in a in Ellen White's writings, it says everything depends on the right action of the will. will. Will is your power of choice. You have to make a decision. And all of us in life will find ourselves in a situation where our judgment, the Holy Spirit enlightening our minds, our, our conscience convicting of his duty, we reasonably understand what's the course that we need to take, but we may have powerful feelings, desires, as it talks about in the James text, that is to, are tempting us, that it might not feel good to do what's right in the moment. We will we'll find ourselves in a place to have to make a choice. Can anybody think of some examples of this? Yes.
1: I was just wondering what happens when the problem is reversed. You see somebody in pain, but your judgment says, this is not my problem, I should not be involved
0: if you're following your judgment and your conscience is clear, then that what happened is you should hopefully have more peace and well-being. If your judgment is only using your uh, your, if your judgment, however, see the way the mind works. The unconverted mind, the unconverted mind is has the judgment infected with self-centeredness. Okay, it says in it says in Romans that the uh, carnal mind is is set on what the, the 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 carnal desires want, or the carnal fallen nature wants. So. When we're, when, our, when we're unconverted, we use all of these abilities here to gratify the fallen nature. We reason and process and plan and rationalize and strategize about how we can get ahead, how we can promote ourselves, we'll justify our wrong behaviors to make ourselves do well. But the converted man, the converted man has a, an ennobled judgment, reason, and conscience. A cleansed conscience has, um, has a will that has been... Uh, we're talking about this self-control. This is part of rege- recovering and regaining self-control, is having a renewed mind that we have the ability to make choices that follow in a noble judgment rather than being dominated by powerful emotions or feelings. And so, if in fact the person has been converted and we have enlightenment of the Holy Spirit and the judgment is, leave it alone. And can you think of circumstances when somebody is hurting and somebody is suffering and the best course of action is to leave it alone? Well, let's take an example from Scripture. Prodigal son. Do you think there came a time in the prodigal son's life when he was hurting and suffering? Yes. Did the father still have resources and means? Yeah. Could he have had his agents, his, his representatives, follow that boy around, send him pizza from Pizza Hut, put him up in a Motel 6, get him a shower every night, instead of letting him wallow with the pigs? Could he have done that? Could he have Metaphorically, Of course, there weren't pizza huts. Okay. But um, yes, he could have done that. And if he would have done that, would the boy have figured out as quickly things weren't working well? Or might he have said, hey, I'm getting by, it's working out. And he would have stayed away longer. So even though he saw him suffering, the judgment call was... Let him stay there and reap the consequences of his behavior, which will bring him to alertness and awareness that something is wrong with the choices he's making. And this is how pain works in our life. This is what God meant to Paul when Paul was persecuting the church. And on Damascus Road he says, why are you kicking against the thorns? What do you mean kicking against the thorns? What is that? This is why God allows pain to come. If you put your hand on a hot stove, is it better to feel pain or not feel pain? Yeah, see, people with leprosy, Hansen's disease, don't feel pain. And therefore, they keep the hand there until they smell the flesh burning. And the, and the, and the olfactory senses say, oh, pull back, something's wrong. But how much, how much tissue have they lost by then? See, it's better to feel the pain instantly because then it pulls us back. Our consciences are designed to convict us of zeal, to cause us psychological pain when we deviate from, from God's course and God's methods. And for what purpose? to call us to pull back and stop down that path and redirect ourselves. And so one of the things as parents, it's a fine line to call with our kids. Where do you draw the line between allowing your kid to suffer the consequence of their choice and intervening to protect them from feeling the pain of their choice? It's a fine line. It's a judgment call. Sometimes it's best to let them feel the pain. Isn't it? Yes. Because if you don't let them feel the pain, sometimes they don't learn. My dad told me that, unfortunately, I had to learn by the school of hard knocks. Anybody ever gone to that school besides me? Yeah. Yeah, I had to feel the pain sometimes because I wouldn't listen just to being being told. Yes.
1: Then he has a problem child misunderstanding his motive and and
0: God. Exactly. This happens all the time. Not even, not even misunderstanding motive um, when you let them just experience the hard knocks, but when you take them to get their vaccines. And you're holding them and they inject the needle into the leg and it hurts. And the kid's going, don't you love me? Why are you doing this? Why aren't you protecting me? How can you let this stranger jab me? Why they misunderstand? My, we end up in circumstances where we misunderstand God. So we find this, this situation here. We have judgment. We're looking at self-control. We have powerful feelings. In between, we have to make a choice. How does, how does the Holy Spirit work in this process? Well, imagine a young lady or a young man, college student. They, uh, they're dating. Uh, their judgment tells them that, that it really is in their best interest to, to maintain their chastity until marriage. But they develop powerful feelings might their feelings tempt them to, to cross a, an appropriate line.
1: Yes.
0: Do they d- d- does their judgment ever come along and say, "You know what? God would really be proud of me and would really honor honor uh, my fa- mother and father and and I'd love to be able to get up in chapel and describe the exploits we're going to engage in and, and uh, tell about my witness here." I mean, does their judgment ever come along and agree that premarital sex is going to be good? No. Doesn't. Never does. So, if they if they go with their feelings, and they choose to engage in premarital sex. What does the judgment do? Good job. Good job. Proud of you. Guilty. Internal to self. Your judgment is still there. And your judgment condemns you.
1: not like that. Doesn't it get impaired?
0: Well, this is what happens first thing is you start feeling guilt. Judgment is condemning. And then what happens is we don't like guilt. How many like guilt? We don't like guilt so we want guilt to go away two ways to make guilt go away one way is God's way repentance a genuine heart change and restoration if possible we've been been restored by the Holy Spirit to have a new heart and right spirit and we no longer uh, value those methods we actually live a different life It's it's no longer I that live but Christ lives in me we've been changed guilt goes away there's another way to make guilt go away though Denial and distortion. It wasn't me. It was the woman you put in the garden. If she would have brought me the fruit, I would have never taken it. I didn't do anything wrong. (laughs) Denial and distortion. Okay, This is what people do all the time. They deny and they distort. The problem is the truth can never be changed. The truth is the truth. The only way we can avoid dealing with the truth is through denial and distortion, which means we begin warping our mental faculties. We begin damaging reason. We begin searing the conscience. We begin creating false scenarios in which we have to hide in order to avoid the the reality of our condition. Paul talks about this in Romans as piling up wrath for the day of wrath. Why? Because they're not dealing with the actual problems in their character now, they're hiding behind lies that allow them to avoid the reality of their condition, which only makes it worse for the day that they have to face their condition. Does this make sense? Yeah. So. Judgment gets damaged. But also, we still have this internal inadequacy, this insecurity. When we follow our feelings, so let's, let's, let's take the scenario and play it out. Young couple here on campus, their judgment says no, but they cross the line. Do they have more peace? No. they have more anxiety? Yes. Do they worry that someone might find out? Might there be worry uh, of a pregnancy? Might there be worry of an STD? Anxiety, worry. Might they be worried about salvation, their relationship with God? So all of this happens. Now what happens internal to them? This increased worry, because you cross this line, activates the fear centers in the brain called the amygdala as the fear centers activate you get more stress hormones released through your body more catecholamines this activates the sympathetic nervous system which activates white cells in your body which begin releasing inflammatory factors called cytokines the inflammatory factors begin damaging insulin receptors in your periphery they begin damaging uh, synaptic connections so you begin hit, having aches and pains you're restless you don't you 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 don't sleep as well your concentration is impaired you get fatigued uh you you uh you have appetite disturbance Ultimately, if you continue on this path where you have this anxiety, this worry, this uneasiness, this restlessness internal to yourself, this reacts back, crosses the blood-brain barrier, and inflammatory cascade starts happening in the brain, which begins damaging the the white cells of the brain. Ultimately, the cascade continues, and you actually alter gene expression. Genes get turned off, and other genes get turned on that alter the, the proteins that are being produced in the brain, and you begin losing neurons in the brain, and you get depressed. And that's what depression is. This is why the Bible says a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. A heart at peace is healthy. So the Holy Spirit brings health to our bodies in Hebrews. So the Holy Spirit brings health to our bodies. How does the Holy Spirit bring health to our bodies? Well, if you've been in this condition, you've been in this condition and you come to repentance and you open your heart to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes in and renews your heart, you're now converted. Does the guilt go away? Do you have peace again? The whole inflammatory worry anxiety cascade stops. You have love for others. And that whole stress diathesis stops and you have health. The body begins to get healthy. Isn't it phenomenal how God made us? Yeah. How about if, uh, here, let's take a different, a different example. Um, you've got your, your, your agenda. You want to do something. Uh, may, maybe it be this weekend you want to go to Six Flags with your family or whatever. Uh, maybe you're an adolescent, 16, 17, 18 years old. You've got something you want to do and the parents say no. <laughs> Might you be tempted with certain feelings in that matter?
1: <laughs>
0: feelings of frustration, of irritation, maybe even feelings of anger. What, what would, if, if, if the judgment is even working, would the judgment say, Good idea to backtalk my parents? <laughs> good idea to let all this anger come out in very ugly words and have a little hissy fit and temper tantrum. Good idea. Would the judgment say it's a good idea? How about you're at school board meeting, and the, and the school board is about to, to make some new rule, and it really offends you. You get angry at what they're saying, and you have the temptation to stand up and curse out the, the board. <laughs> Judgment's going to say, good idea? What would judgment say? If you're that mad, if you're that frustrated, what would judgment say to do? Oh, she said, be quiet. Go out of the room, Decompress. Get your thoughts together. Learn how to express whatever it is that's troubling you in a constructive manner. But let's say what happens if feelings take charge overrules judgment. You choose to let all that expression out to mom, to dad, to the school board, to the church board, and you just vent all this ugliness. What's going to happen after that? You walk away feeling proud of yourself? Well, see, and this is the subtlety of sin. This is the subtlety of sin. The the first example, the, the sex example... While they're involved in that process, will there be some pleasure? If you're that frustrated and you vent it and you let them have it while you're doing it, is there a certain, I felt good. Isn't there? Come on. But is it actually good? This is the subtlety of sin. Almost every sin we engage in, at the time we're engaged in it, it, gives us a certain reward, a certain sense of that felt good. But it's actually not good for us to do it. It actually, in the moment, often feels worse to, to be alone with your with your significant other and, and to be able to, to restrain self and say no may not feel as good in the moment. But it brings us into peace and happiness. Now, to be in that frustrating situation where you want to just, oh man, they're just oh, pushing your buttons. And you just want to let it. But to restrain yourself right then may not feel as good. Yes? But if you do, do you actually over the long haul feel much better? Yes, absolutely. And so this is the dynamic that we all struggle with. Yes?
1: Can you not take that over the other edge too? By restraining too much?
0: He says, can you restrain too much? Sure. You can. I won't give some examples that I've seen. Too graphic. But it has to do with child abuse and where parents don't protect a child. They restrain too much. But why are they restraining? Fear. 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 See, I've, I've I've had situations where mom discovers stepdad is abusing daughter. Daughter's 10 years old. 10-year-old daughter tells mom. And mom doesn't protect the 10-year-old daughter. And In fact, accuses the 10-year-old daughter of lying. Now, you may or may not know this. And just stats, by the way, in the United States, one in three... Girls, by the time they're 17, will have been abused in their home. By the time, one in three. United States. So it happens a lot. Now, why does the person not stand up in that circumstance? Is it because judgment is in control? Or is it the same problem that feelings of insecurity and fear, they are so insecure and fearful of being alone and abandoned that they will sacrifice their daughter in order to keep this guy from leaving them? It happens all the time. It happens all the time. When the judgment is in control, and we're following an enlightened judgment in a converted mind, we don't restrain too much. We have good judgment. When we do something that's improper, it's almost always, look at your life history, it's almost always when feelings were in charge, whether it be feelings of insecurity and fear of what's going to happen or feelings of some other kind. So if we find ourselves in circumstances where we've had this mind turned upside down, we've been living in such a way where our feelings have been running roughshod over us, what happens? What happens to us? Well, I already mentioned the whole stress diathesis. That actually results in rewiring of your brain. Your brain over time, if you practice this, it become, you become um, more vulnerable to do this again. You become more fear-ridden, more insecure. So the young lady who in high school or college uh, crosses that, that fidelity line, allows herself to, to, to be taken advantage of or p- participates in sexual activity, does her self-esteem go up or down? And so the next time she's in with a guy, is she more capable of resisting or is she more vulnerable needing more attention? She's more fearful of rejection or she's more confident? oftentimes what happens is she's feeling so low, unless she's been converted. Uh, in the conversion experience, then she can have more resolve and more confidence. But it, uh, short of conversion, just struggling on her own, there's more fear and insecurity, which means she's more needy of affirmation, which means she can't tolerate rejection as much, which means she's more vulnerable to being exploited again. And so this only cascade downward, and the next time it's worse, and the next time it's worse, and it keeps spiraling downward. The only way out is applying the truth. Yes. What about the it was the same thing with the guy. The guy would be going through the same thing. Pardon? Do they feel that guilt? Yes. Yes, they do as well. Now, it can, it's very interesting because in an unconverted person, sometimes we can, it's just like I said, denial and distortion. So the guy can avoid the guilt through denial and distortion. Just like Adam, not me. It's the woman you gave me. I didn't do anything wrong. I have no reason to feel guilty. Hmm. Right. Okay. And so, And so the guy can can do that kind of stuff and say, uh, especially in a culture where he's being supported by others around him, that, uh, that this is some type of cultural uh, way to prove his manliness, uh, and they start ticking off the number of girls on their, on their belt, notches on their belt, uh, that they actually use this in a distorted way to promote their own self, and for a while it makes them even feel better about themselves. Hm. I am the Mr. Studley of campus. It's a dial distortion, though. Internal to themselves, their conscience is still convicting. And so to avoid that, they have to create this other scenario in which they uh, put a false sense of values in their mind that they're trying to operate on. But eventually, it still comes home to roost. And the interesting, the danger of doing that is that um, that this denial and distortion, as Russell mentioned, alters reason and conscience. So your actual ability to re- to discern reality becomes warped. It's like putting a set of lenses on and those lenses, in order to, uh, to warp reality enough so you don't feel guilt, you have to wear them everywhere. So the whole world suddenly becomes war- warped. And people, you've met people like this. Um, I had somebody in my office the other day that was dealing with someone like this. And the example I give would be, if you deal with somebody like this, these are people who do not like truth. The Pharisees in Christ's day, very much like this. They had a warped reality. And this is why they hated Christ, because they couldn't avoid the truth of their own condition around him. And it made them very uncomfortable. So the metaphor I give is imagine you know somebody who has fungating legions on their face, like pus legions on their face. It's really kind of gross. And of course, it's not nice to look at. But these people, and this is of course what would sin be in the character. Sin would be, and we get the scriptures that describe this, it's, you know, that we are, we are dysfungating and, and corrupt and, 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 nec- and necrotizing our characters are, are diseased. That's what the scriptures describe us in sin. And so, the people who have this, uh, this type of, let's say, a facial lesion, but they don't want to deal with it, uh, well, well, they like mirrors in their house. No. no. So what do they do? This is a metaphor. They go through their house, and they take watercolor paint, and they paint a pretty picture of themselves on the mirror. So that every time they walk by a mirror, they see this pretty picture of themselves. Okay? The mirrors, by the way, are the people in our lives. Now... Somebody who doesn't play the game. And you know, these are the people who have these very warped characters, but they're very controlling, very manipulative, very critical, and everyone else in the family always goes along with what they say. Nobody ever stands up to them. Nobody ever says them. Nobody ever confronts anything because there's always some hostile, ugly, critical thing. And you see these families like this. All the mirrors are painted to feed back to this person what that person wants to hear. Then a new person comes, maybe a boyfriend, maybe there's a marriage, an in-law, somebody comes into the family, and that person won't play the game and that person comes into the house and begins putting Windex on the mirrors and cleaning off the paint. Guess what happens? In our metaphor, if that were to happen in the home, would that person be happy or be very very upset about that? Very upset. And so they have to break the mirrors or get those real mirrors out of the house. And so in relationships, you'll find these tensions within families where somebody doesn't play the game. That person that won't play the game, won't give the feedback the person wants to hear, gets ostracized, gets left out gets criticized, gets... gets. Uh, I see some heads nodding. Some of you have, have experienced this. Okay? And, and because they have to wear those warps everywhere to avoid seeing their own self. And this, of course, can only... And, and something i said before, I'll say again. We can never avoid the truth. You can never avoid the truth. You can only delay the day you deal with it. The truth always comes home. We can deal with it today, here, now, under the umbrella of God's grace. And we will maybe go through a process of, of discomfort as a wound, as a problem in our life gets resolved, addressed, and healed. But it brings healing under God's grace. We can put it off, put it off, put it off until the day we stand before God, the source of all truth. And no lies, no distortions, no twists of logic will allow us to avoid the reality of our own hearts and our own condition. And it will come home to roost with terrible agony. As Jesus said, a weeping and gnashing of teeth. We will be in miserable straits as we see ourselves for what we really are. Yes? You
1: use the term converted heart and the difference that happens. Are you saying, I don't think you are, that being converted automatically takes dysfunction away?
0: No. No, it's a process. Uh, Being converted takes guilt away health uh, appropriate guilt now if you've been converted and you're still struggling with guilt it's almost always an inappropriate guilt if you've had a change of heart if you've resolved the stuff in your life that led to that guilt and you're still feeling guilt then it's inappropriate guilt inappropriate guilt is always based on lies but you can't tell the difference between appropriate and inappropriate guilt by how it feels because they feel the same And if you like a lecture, there's a lecture on our website, comeinreason.com, under the media menu, under the Healing the Mind section, called Guilt, Appropriate Versus How to to Resolve Guilt. There's a whole uh, hour long lecture on the differences between the two types of guilt and how to resolve them, if if anybody wants to check that out. Here is uh, something out of Steps to Christ, page 43 dealing with this whole process of heart conversion. It says, God's promise is, you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah twenty-nine, thirteen. The whole heart must be yielded to God or the change can never be wrought in us by which we are to be restored to his likeness. The change by which we are to be, notice this, the process is man sinned and man got changed. We're not like him anymore. We need to be changed back. By nature we are alienated from God. The Holy Spirit describes our condition in such words as dead and trespasses and sin. The whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. No soundness in it. We are held fast in the snare of Satan, taken captive by him at his will. God desires to heal us, to set us free. But since this requires an entire transformation, a renewing of the whole nature, we must yield ourselves wholly to him. So again, when we talk about how do we get freedom, By surrendering to Christ, well, because when we surrender to Christ, what happens? He heals us. He transforms us. He renews us. He revitalizes us. He cleanses us. So he puts us back into the position where one day we experience all those fruits of the spirit, the last fruit being self-control. We are autonomous beings governed, again, by our God-given individuality uh, in harmony with his law and will. The warfare against self is the greatest battle that was ever fought. This is the greatest enemy we have to fight. Our own selves. The yielding of self, surrendering all to the will of God, requires a struggle. But the soul must submit to God before it can be renewed in holiness. The government of God is not... Now this is key. The government of not God is not, as Satan would make it appear, founded upon blind submission and unreasoning control. It appeals to the intellect and to the conscience. Come now, let us reason together, is the creator's inv- invitation to the beings he has made. God does not force the will of his creatures. He cannot accept an homage that is not willingly and intelligently given. A mere forced submission would prevent all real development of mind and character. It would make man a mere automaton. Such is not the purpose of the Creator. He desires that man, the crowning work of his creative power, shall reach the highest possible development. He sets before us the height of blessing to which he desires to bring us through his grace. He invites us to give ourselves to him that he may work his will in us It remains for us to choose whether we will be set free from the bondage of sin to share the glorious liberty of sons of God. What do you think about that quote? Isn't that powerful stuff? See, we have a choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. And when we make choices with our will, we actually determine which neural circuits in our brain get fired. And depending on which neural circuits get fired, the, the way the brain works, the neural circuits that fire actually cause an enzyme to be produced that causes a protein to be cleaved that makes that makes the neural circuit that's being fired grow stronger. It actually expands. New neurons are c- recruited. The neural net you have, new dendrites are sprouting. And so the whole interconnections expand if you're firing it. If you leave the neural circuits calm, if you're not firing, if you're choosing to, to leave idle an old habit pattern, that enzyme is not produced that protein therefore is not cleaved and and what happens is it instead prunes back that neural net that neural net shrinks and you've all experienced this when you took Spanish in high school working and studying, working and studying firing that neural circuit, firing that neural circuit it expands, that protein's there and and your syntax and enunciation and abilities expand and then you graduate and 20 years go by And you haven't spoken that language in 20 years and and there's a mission trip coming up Mm -hmm. and your spouse is trying to fall. Well, my spouse took Spanish in high school. (laughs) Shut up. Shut up. (laughs) Why are we saying shut up? (laughs) Have we lost something in 20 years? Yes, Yes, the neural circuit not used prunes back. Understand this is part of character development. We have a choice through God's grace what neural circuits we fire. And as we fire healthy circuits, we actually are changed neurologically, psychologically, characterologically, genetically. Our gene expression gets turned on and turned off based on these choices. Phenomenal stuff. Yes?
1: So what if you're somebody or you love somebody that is out there in the world with feelings and and they're looking through those those rose-colored glasses how do help you help them to know where to start you know to make those healthier
0: choices you can't help somebody else you can't what I mean by that is you can't make somebody else's choices well, you present the truth in love you present the truth in love
1: but what if they want to know where to start you know where, where do you help them know where to start
0: step one admit that you have a problem amen admit that you are you're powerless and helpless over your own ability to change yourself Step one, we cannot change ourselves. Can any of us in this room, we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Does anyone in our own strength have the ability to change ourselves? Step one, admit that we have a problem and we're powerless. Step two, there's a power higher than ourselves that can restore and heal us. But we may recognize both of those steps. I, I agree with one, I agree with two. But we will not take step three. Step three is I turn my life and trust my life, my heart, into the hands of my higher power. We won't take step step three until we've seen the truth. Enough truth about God as revealed in Christ to destroy the lies and win us to trust. We won't take step three until we genuinely trust Him. And this is why He brought the truth. You'll know the truth. The truth sets us free from what? From lies, primarily about God, that keep us from trusting. We may know about Him, But until we know him, life eternal is knowing him, we won't trust him. We may agree we're powerless. We may agree only God can do it. But we still won't turn our lives into his hands until we trust him. And it's the truth about him. And then when we turn our lives into his hands, there's a supernatural power that comes into our lives that begins changing us. When the, here, here it says, at desire of ages, 324. When the soul surrenders itself to Christ, a new power takes possession of the heart. It changes wrought which man can never accomplish for himself. It is a supernatural work bringing a supernatural element into the human heart. The soul that is yielded to Christ becomes his own fortress which he holds in a revolted world and he intends that no authority shall be known in it but his own. A soul thus kept in possession by the heavenly agencies is impregnable to the salts of Satan. But unless we do yield ourselves to the control of Christ, we shall be dominated by the wicked one. We must inevitably be under the control of one or the other of the two great powers that are contending for supremacy of the world. It is not necessary for us to deliberately choose the service of the kingdom of darkness in order to, over, in order to come under its dominion. We have only to neglect to ally ourselves with the kingdom of light. If we do not cooperate with the heavenly agencies, Satan will take possession of the heart and will make it his abiding place. The only defense against evil is the indwelling of Christ in the heart through faith in his righteousness. And so forth and so on. Why is it true that we don't have to choose evil? We only have to neglect to choose Christ. Why is that true?
1: evil is our
0: natural bent evil is our biological and natural inherited condition we are born self-centered selfish and if we don't choose a power to deliver us from that even if satan is wiped out of existence we still continue to live selfish and will destroy ourselves and our way will lead where to death i just want to know what truth and love looks like like we say that all
1: the time but what is truth and love jesus is
0: about Jesus? Jesus is the law of love in physical form. Jesus lived out what Adam was supposed to live out. Jesus demonstrated what flesh and blood looks like when it's perfect in harmony of truth and love. And what did he do? How did he treat the woman in adultery? How did he treat those who crucified him? Father, for him. not even in thought. But that goes back to the point I was about to make on this whole neural circuit that you fire. The neural circuits that you fire with the power of the choice of the will activates and strengthens. You don't have to actually choose it in behavior. You only have to choose it in your imagination. If we put people in a scanner and have them play an instrument where we can see which neural circuits are firing, um, then we take the the instrument away. We put little electrodes in called EMGs where we can actually see which muscles are being contracted and have them imagine playing the same piece of music. And we document no muscles are being contracted. So they're not actually firing the motor circuits. The same neural circuits of the brain fire when they play the piece of music in their imagination. What does this mean for us when we talk about character change, development, rewiring the brain? Well, we can take and we can lock a recidivist uh, pedophile away in prison. Lock them up where they cannot act and they cannot perform um, perverted sexual acts. Can we control their imagination? And as long as they're still doing those things in their imagination, they're still firing the unhealthy, twisted circuits, and they can actually come out 20 years in prison later more of a pedophile than they went in. This is why, it's, this is why it says in Scripture that we are to bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ. It's a complete transformation of our thinking patterns. And this is the supernatural work that we surrender to, and then we choose um, by the power of choice what we we allow ourselves to focus on, meditate, worship. And I had in the notes today, because the, the, the lesson tells us right here in Sunday's lesson, to look at Philippians, whatever is holy, pure, praiseworthy, trustworthy, all these things. This is what we focus on. And I was going to give you some data on what happens to the brain when you, when you behold things that are destructive and how your brain wires in negative ways. I think
1: busy is one of the biggest things that we do as a culture. And that hour a day that is suggested so many times in how we were raised is probably the most important thing. And everybody wants to know, well, what will fix all of this? But if you start focusing by beholding, we will become changed.
0: In the bottom of Sunday's lesson, it talks about, there's a statement here. It says, he's talking about walking in the spirit. A life without the spirit is incapable of, on its own of developing the fruits of the spirit. Absolutely true. Though we have the will, Paul speaks for all of us when he says that we don't have the power. The answer to the dilemma of Romans 7 is not when can we overcome, but how. And the how is found through faith in Jesus. We give ourselves to Jesus, we claim his righteousness, and we are no longer condemned. And I wanted to, we've already talked about the how, about the trusting, about recognizing we're uh, we're sick, we're terminal, we can't fix ourselves, we recognize that only God can fix us, and we have to one back to the truth about God, so that we'll genuinely trust Him, open the heart, the Spirit comes in, and begins a supernatural work in our hearts, and we get to have a daily cooperative walk with Him, and we're transformed as we make choices to focus on, fix the mind on Christ, and start eliminating those things that are destructive. We are transformed in that journey as we yoke ourselves up with Christ. And I wanted to talk about this condemnation thing. Where does condemnation come from? And I've got a whole bunch of stuff in the notes to document this. We don't have time to go through all of them. But uh, Jesus talked about uh, the brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? This is in uh, Matthew uh, 23, 29. And then he goes on to, to say to them, right after he says those words, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent to you, how often have longed to gather you as a child, children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. So when you hear the context of him talking about there, who's going to protect you from being condemned to hell, and you hear his words next about Jerusalem, Jerusalem, do you hear the condemnation coming from Jesus? See, a lot of people want you to believe we're condemned by God. That God condemns us. Uh, John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already well where's the condemnation arising where's it coming from is it external is God sitting in judgment and says I condemn you is that where it's coming from and Jesus said I tell you the truth whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned he has crossed over from death to life why will he not be condemned or how about this? Matthew 12, 33-37. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings the good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings forth evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Where does the condemnation arise? See, what is he telling us? That our very condition is what determines our eternal destiny. We are all terminal. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot heal ourselves. But Christ has come to provide remedy Remedy for our condition. And when we trust Him, the Holy Spirit does a supernatural work applying all Christ has achieved into our hearts. This is out of 6 Bible Commentary 1074. The atonement of Christ is not a mere skillful way to have our sins pardoned. It is a divine remedy for the cure of transgression and the restoration of spiritual health. It is a heaven-ordained means by, by what? What do you think? Heaven-ordained means by which you can have your legal penalty paid and forgiveness stamped by your record book in heaven? No. It is the heaven-ordained means by which the righteousness of Christ may not only be upon us, but in our hearts and characters. It's a transforming, regenerating, recreative work. Or how about this one? General Conference, Daily Bulletin, March 2, 1897. In assuming human nature, that he might reach to the very depths of human woe and misery and lift man up, Christ has shown what estimate he places upon the human race. In this very work was at stake. Satan claimed to be the lawful owner of the human race and what persistent effort did he seek to overthrow Christ through his subtlety? It was only by the most desperate conflict with the powers of Satan that Christ could accomplish his purpose. His purpose of what? His purpose of restoring the almost obliterated image of God in man and place his own signature on his forehead. What was his purpose? To eliminate selfishness from the heart and restore perfect godly love in the human being. It was a desperate battle for Satan had so long worked in league with human intelligences as to almost completely intercept every ray of light shining from the throne of God upon the human mind. The cross of Calvary alone could destroy the works of the devil. Or a Great Controversy 645. In the beginning, man was created in the likeness of God, not only in character, but in form and feature. Sin defaced and almost obliterated the divine image. But Christ came to restore that which had been lost. Or Signs of the Times, February 11, 1897. We can through sin. We cannot of ourselves keep the law of God. Everybody agree? Of ourselves. We can't do it. But Christ came to our world to restore the moral image of God in man. And to bring them back from the path of disobedience to the path of obedience. His mission to the world was to reveal the character of God by living the law, which is the foundation of his government. And those who will accept him as their personal savior will grow in grace, and in his strength will be enabled to obey the law. This is a transforming work. When man sinned, who got changed? God or man? Then the plan of salvation is to change who? God or man? Christ came to change us, to heal us, to restore us, to regenerate us. This is what He came to do. The whole day is building up to this crescendo. Okay, um, there are several lies told by Satan because we. What is it that step one we have to admit we're we're powerless. Step two we see is right. Step three we have to trust Him, and there are several lies told by Satan that impair our ability to trust Him. And here are a couple He told in heaven, as according to Ellen White, uh, Desire of Ages, seven sixty one. Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Lie number one, every sin has to be punished. And then some of the angels that were siding with Lucifer were thinking about going back. It says many angels were disposed to heed the counsel and to repent of their disaffection and to seek again to receive in the favor of the Father's Son. But Lucifer had another deception ready. So, deception one, sin has to be punished. Another deception, the mighty revolter now declared that the angels who had united with him had gone too far to return, that he was acquainted with the divine law and knew that God would not forgive. Lie two. Lie one, sin has to be punished. Lie two, God would not forgive. And then there's several other quotes in here where she talks about Satan's plan to lead men to forget God and and misrepresent his character. And and the creator has been presented in their minds as possessing the attributes of the prince of evil, arbitrary, severe, and unforgiving. The attributes of evil, arbitrary, severe, and unforgiving. So the lies, every sin must be punished. God is unforgiving and severe. Why is this important? I'm going to have to jump down and just share this with you and see what you think about this. Great Controversy 495. God in his great mercy bore long with Lucifer. He was not immediately degraded from his exalted station when he first indulged the spirit of discontent, nor even when he began to present his false claims before the loyal angels. What would presenting false claims before the loyal angels be called? Thou shalt not bear? Would this be sin? Yes, okay. So he's sinning. Long was he retained in heaven. Now get this. Again and again he was offered pardon. On the condition of repentance and submission. No death penalty. No blood atonement. Repentance and submission. Such efforts as only infinite love and wisdom could devise were made to convince him of his error. Though he had forsaken his position as covering cherub, yet if he had been willing to return to God, acknowledging the Creator's wisdom and satisfied the place appointed him in God's great plan, he would have been reinstated in office. By the way, do you need pardon if you haven't sinned? So notice, he was offered pardon again and again on the condition of repentance and submission. Now, I got to thinking about this. There's a model out there that says, every sin must be punished. God will not forgive without a legal blood penalty paid to pay the legal debt of our sin. Then he'll forgive. There's a model that says this. Let's apply this model to what was happening. We've heard this description of Ellen White right here, where she describes it, that he was offered pardon just on repentance and submission. But let's say, Lucifer repents. The penal model is now enforced in heaven. Christ comes in the form of an angel, is taking centered stage, and the universe is told that Lucifer's sin has broken God's law, but has repented. But every sin must be punished. They are told that that Christ loves Lucifer and therefore would accept the punishment in Lucifer's behalf. And then they watch as the Father executes his son to satisfy his wrath against sin and enforce divine justice. What do you think happens in the rest of the universe? more love and trust of God and more fear and terror and dread and sin spreads. We've been lied to, folks. We've been lied to. And it's time that we begin embracing the truth that God is exactly as Jesus came and represented. And don't walk out of here saying that I don't believe Jesus had to die for our salvation. Jesus absolutely had to die. We could not be saved if Jesus didn't come, live a perfect life, die on the cross, and resurrect. His death was absolutely necessary. It just wasn't necessary for the stuff that we're told it's necessary for. It's necessary for the purpose of destroying... The carnal nature, destroying the infection that is killing mankind, destroying selfishness, exposing Satan. As it says in Scripture, that His death was necessary to destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. He was two fourteen uh, to destroy death and bring life and immortality to light. That would be destroying the carnal nature. That's Second Timothy one ten and destroying the devil's work. First John three eight and the devil's work we just read was to obliterate the image of God in man and restore the image of God back where it belonged. That's what Christ came to achieve. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You so much that You have not forsaken us, even though we have often been afraid of You. We long for Your restoration of godliness in us. We want to be free from fear and selfishness. We want to have the fruits of the spirit restored. We want to be free to live a self-governed and self-controlled life empowered by your Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you came to earth. You fought the battle with self that we could not fight. You were tempted in every way just like we are, yet you overcame where we could not overcome. And because of your victory now, Lord, because of what you have achieved for us, we ask that the Holy Spirit will be imparted to do a supernatural work in our life to restore love to give us the strength to say no to those temptations that we can go out of here living a life of loving you and loving others to bring the world to a knowledge of you that you may come soon. We pray in your most precious name. Amen. Amen.